Well, we are going to take a little time now to talk about the BC Salmon Farmers Association and a transition plan when it comes to the future for salmon farming in this province. And joining us to do that is Brian Kingsant, Executive Director at the BC Salmon Farmers Association. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Uh, This is a new report that your group has put out. It's called BC Salmon Aquaculture Transition Then and Now. Uh, Is this report kind of a blueprint or or what are you hoping that this report kind of uh, does or or accomplishes? Good question. So the federal government in 2022 issued a uh, mandate and a framework for discussion about how the um, Department of Fisheries and Oceans uh, was trying to achieve a mandate, a liberal mandate, that how we would further reduce our interactions with wild salmon, which is obviously a um, issue of concern in British Columbia that we all share. Uh, and so this week we issued a statement that basically said principles by which we feel that that transition uh, should happen. And uh, and so that's that's currently where we are right now is is talking about that. And what we feel is that one of the things that's most important is that we respect uh, the communities of First Nations in which we operate. The BC salmon farming industry uh, employs about 5,000 people and produces about $1.2 billion in economic activity. And almost all of that happens in rural coastal areas. Uh, where we work with the with First Nations that are interested in participating in the industry. And and how involved were First Nations then in coming up with this report or in, in talking about and coming up with this idea of how the transition would work? Well, I think what's happening is that uh, there's, you know, varied uh, First Nations on the coast have very varied uh, involvement and interest in salmon farming, um, all Almost every single farm that is exists within coastal British Columbia is under an agreement with First Nations. And the First Nations have, some of those go back more than 20 years. And First Nations are gaining a lot of equity in the industry through, uh, through employment, uh, through supply-side businesses. And some of their economies are becoming more and more tied to a successful agriculture industry. So... We are, as a sector, have are pride ourselves on being um, out in front on reconciliation and working with the uh, First Nations that we do. And that sometimes involves leaving areas where we're not wanted. So there are some First Nations that have decided they don't want the industry in their area. And so in those areas where, le- you know, we've had agreements to leave. And in many cases, First Nations are providing governance, uh, higher levels of uh, scrutiny where their guardians uh, observe what's happening on on farms or uh, require that additional environmental monitoring is happening. Right. So, so and so the while the report itself is new and has some some new ideas in it, the idea of of a transition or a transition plan isn't all that new for the industry, is it? In that there's been a lot of discussion specifically about open net pens and the future of those. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, the industry is relatively new. Um, You know, we started with just a few hundred tons in 1986. uh, And now, you know, our our, our BC's largest agriculture export. And the open net pen is is a sort of a generalization, but it's a, you know, something that's come under um, a bit of scrutiny and discussion. 
And we have been innovating, you know, all during that time. The industry now does not look at all like it did 10 years ago or five years ago. We are continuing to innovate and looking for ways that limit our interaction. We're quite proud of the fact that, you know, right now uh, we have a number of federal science reports that says we've met our the federal government standard for less than minimal interaction with wild salmon. Um, the Cohen Commission determined that they could not see a link between uh, our operations and the and uh, and Fraser River declines in Fraser River sockeye, but we recognize that this is a uh, issue of concern. Uh, we're in the salmon industry; we're all all salmon fans, and you know we want to continue to improve, you know, reduce any risk that we might might have, uh, improve our operations, and you know work to um, to help you know, help protect wild salmon populations in BC while at the same time, you know, providing, you know, food, you know, food and, and low climate, you know, food with a low climate impact um, uh, and jobs, you know, in these rural communities. And and when we look at kind of the history and, and the recent history as well, and, and people will remember hearing that the federal government was phasing out open net pen salmon farms in, in certain parts of BC waters. Uh, and then there was a bit of a pullback on that, I think for a lot of the reasons that you just outlined as far as looking at the the potential harm or looking at the impact that, that those farms have and the, the economics, that, that the, the economic uh, prosperity that they can bring to some regions what, what how would you kind of sum up where we're at with those open net farms and whether or not they are going to continue uh, for the foreseeable future sure so the original mandate uh, was fairly confusing and it still remains a bit a bit confusing even to the sector um, you know we're looking for outcomes and the original uh, the original mandate was that open net pen farms would um, uh, leave the water, and of course, for British Columbia, if they move on to land, we simply don't have enough uh, land, uh, pa- uh, available power grids, uh, and we know that the if we move to land, we'll also lose the industry from BC because it will probably move to where larger markets are or portions of the industry. So, when we queried back on that, you know, what what is the outcome that was desired? Well, the outcome that was desired was to further reduce our interactions with wild salmon. And so that that has helped clarify the mandate a little bit. And we're, you know, working, you know, with uh, First Nations and the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans to figure out ways by and timelines by which we can further demonstrate that we are not posing any risk to wild salmon populations. And and that would it would appear that that is what the federal government or what the fisheries minister is looking at now, wouldn't it? In that there there are licenses that are still being allowed that that are being granted, and the operations are continuing at least now for the time being, if not expanding. I would not say that we're expanding. We in uh, twenty twenty we took a. Uh, 20% reduction in the farms when licenses weren't renewed for the Discovery Islands. That that equates to about 20,000 metric tons or about 120 million uh, meal portions uh, away from Canadian and U.S. plates uh, per year. So we're not expanding at this point, but we are looking to get some certain business certainty so that we continue to invest. And the industry has been investing hundreds of millions of dollars in more sustainable technologies. And 
in order to continue to do that, you know, we need to know that there's some business certainty. Right now, all the licenses uh, were granted a two-year extension in 2022, so they're going to expire in 2024. And so working, working with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and First Nations to come up with strategies to further innovate and demonstrate you know, any re- reduction in interaction. And do you think that there's the possibility in the future to to get a more clear picture? I suppose it's just it seems like it's it's one it's an industry where if you ask those who are opposed, they are always going to tell you that there are studies and there's data and there's evidence that shows that these fish farms are harmful to salmon. Salmon, but then if you ask somebody like yourself or somebody in the industry, there is also there there's equal evidence, perhaps even more, saying actually no. The, the science shows us that it's not, like you said, it's not responsible for what we might be seeing on the Fraser River. It's not causing this harm. And, and I think the public is kind of left thinking, well, well, which which side is right? No, and I think you're exactly right. This is like not a lot of natural resource discussions in British Columbia. This one has become highly polarized. Uh, and there is, you know, people claim there's science on both sides. Uh, we, as a sector, look to the Canadian Advisory Secretariat, uh, which brings in uh, Canada's best scientists and international experts to address issues. And um, some of the opponents of the industry have uh, suggested that that is a biased system, but it's the best system that, that Canada has. Um, we continue to want to see more independent science on the industry, and we know that this is a discussion that we need to participate in. And we are turning a lot to our the First Nations in the industry who uh, are engaged and have interest in participating in the industry and for helping them make sure that they can uh, get access to independent researchers and science and and make those decisions what are best for the communities. And what we hope to do is, you know, continue to demonstrate that we're being responsible and that, uh, that, you know, good science, which our industry is based on as a marine-based industry, you know, will hold the day. But we completely recognize that this is a controversial and a polarized issue in British Columbia. So where do you see things then with the extension of the licenses, even with the, the, the kind of uh, pulling back that you mentioned, uh, with this transition plan, where do you see things going from here? That's a very good question. Uh, what we're trying to do right now is the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is in a um, a period of, of listening right now in their in their trend, you know, developing what is going to be the transition plan. Um, I'm actually participating in an all-day workshop with Fisheries and Oceans right now. Uh, you know, just sort of talk, and they're talking to various communities of interest, First Nations, ENGOs, the sector, uh, sector suppliers, and we're trying to we're providing our input into what we think the transition process should be and what we are and that's kind of what we have laid out you know sort of foundational principles in a document we released this this week and one of the things that we've really been listening to is we've been listening to the first nations and the communities we operate and you know they have said that they want to uh provide governance provide oversight and um and we recognize that we want to see that um that we you know we that the transition the eventual transition plan of the 
Department recognizes that First Nations have a right to self-determination to decide what they want in their territories. And if they want to see our sector in their territories, that's great. And if they want to see our sector not in their territories, you know, we'll coincide along with that. And that continues. And in that, we see that as part of, you know, driving reconciliation because we provide a lot of opportunity for capacity building. And we want to make sure that there's the First Nations on the coast, you know, have equitable economic opportunities to participate in the industry um, if they so choose. All right. Uh, Brian Kings, uh, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us, though. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Anytime.